Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to GEM23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua, and I'm a senior at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to GEM23 series proceeds and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, Growing in a Green World, on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and we'll feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM23. This week, we are joined by Professor Joe Aldi, who's a professor of the practice of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He formerly served as the special assistant to the president for energy and climate in the Obama White House. Professor Aldi, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Hi, Charles. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I want to start by quickly recapping for the audience a brief mini-history for the topic we're going to discuss today, which is solar geoengineering. In 1988, the UN established the IPCC, or Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and within a decade, the UNFCCC, or United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, became the first global treaty on addressing climate change. We've had the Kyoto Protocol since then, and fast forward to 2015 when the Paris Agreement was established that's become the de facto gold standard for contemporary international climate policy. There's broad consensus on where we are today, as the science is so clearly laid out, and there's broad consensus on where we need to go, as the net zero emissions by 2050 goals have indicated. We've known about the problem and the solutions for a while now, yet we're still on track for 2 to 3 degrees Celsius of global warming. How have we gotten to this point, and where do we go from here? So, Charles, I think the big challenge that we've faced is recognizing the important need to cut emissions, but often wanting to look to someone else to undertake that effort. That there has been a strong incentive among countries of the world, but we can look at the subnational level, whether it's at states or private corporations or even individuals. There's a strong incentive to wait and hope someone else cuts their emissions first that the benefits we enjoy from cutting emissions are very difficult for us to sort of capture for ourselves, whether we're thinking about that from the perspective of an individual, a business, or a country. And so as a result, we've pledged aggressively to cut emissions, but we've seen emissions continue to grow globally over the past three decades that we've had the UN Framework Commission on Climate Change as our primary framework for organizing our coordination on combating climate change. And part of that's just, we continue to see people needing and wanting energy. We continue to see economic growth around the world. We see many countries, understandably so, recognizing the importance of lifting their people out of poverty and trying to develop their economies. May find it troubling when they hear developed countries say, you need to cut your emissions. They look at the lifestyles and the well-being of those in those developed countries and feel like, that actually was built on a foundation of fossil fuel-related economic development over the past couple of centuries. Uh, so as a result, we've, we've talked a lot about the importance of cutting emissions. We've set very ambitious goals going forward. But globally, we haven't really turned the tide and, and really started to drive down our emissions on a year-to-year basis. You write very compellingly in a 2020 op-ed in the Regulatory Review that we need a three-pronged approach to addressing climate change. First, continue mitigation efforts. 
Second, invest in adaptation. And third, implement solar radiation management. And that focus of our discussion today is on that third piece. So for the listeners who may not be familiar with solar geoengineering or solar radiation management, can you explain what these terms mean and why some view them as necessary components of the portfolio to tackle climate change? And can you explain what some of the key concerns are? I think the troubling problem we have is that with the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, we're bearing adverse impacts of climate change now. They're likely to get worse over time. Even if we aggressively reduce our emissions, every year that we continue to emit on net CO2 and other greenhouse gases, we're going to make climate change worse. And I think that means we need to target every potential opportunity and strategy for reducing the risk posed by a changing climate. That means we need to stop the flow of emissions to the atmosphere and eventually perhaps reverse it by pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. It means that we need to adapt to climate change so that for a given level of warming, there's less harms to people's health their well-being, and to ecosystems around the world. But I think recognizing that there's still going to be a lot more climate harms out there and a lot of climate-related suffering, there is value, at least in considering, a strategy of uh, so-called solar geoengineering. The idea here behind solar geoengineering is that we might put particles into the upper stratosphere and deflect a little bit of the incoming sunlight to effectively cool the planet for a given amount of accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The sort of insight from this comes from natural experiments, if you will, volcanic eruptions um, that we've seen historically from some of the very large volcanic eruptions that have shot particles into the upper atmosphere. It's had a cooling effect. I mean, I remember when I first started working on on climate change as a student in college, uh, when I was about your age, Charles, this is right after Mount Pinatubo erupted in the early 1990s. And when we look back at the 1990s, there was growing interest and concern about climate change. We had just negotiated the Framework Commission on Climate Change at the Rio Earth Summit. But 1991, 1992 actually ends up being this period of about 12 to 18 months that was kind of cooler than the years immediately before and immediately after that. And that's because Punutuba actually had this cooling effect, short term, associated with having shot all the, the particles from the volcano into the upper atmosphere. And so the idea is, can we, in a controlled manner, do some engineer kind of response similar to that, that has a cooling effect that might serve to buy us time until we're able to deploy the technologies so that we can have a truly net zero or perhaps even a net negative emissions global economy. And so there's, I think, more and more interest in trying to understand what role solar geoengineering can play that would be a complement to what we're doing in mitigating our emissions and adapting to climate change. Now, a common critique of solar geoengineering is that it will reduce public support for mitigation as if we've thrown in the towel and given up. I'm curious if you've seen evidence for this and following up on what you just spoke on, given how hard it's been for society to focus on even one of the three prongs that you've identified, notably mitigation, do you have confidence that we could effectively tackle mitigation, adaptation, and solar radiation management simultaneously? Well, in some sense... When we think about this, I, I think there's a concern that you know anything you do that's unrelated to emission mitigation might reduce some of the incentives for emission mitigation. For that matter, there are things you can do within one type of emission mitigation might discourage other forms of emission mitigation. That's that's the kind of concern here. I think it's one reason why you know, like the renewables and the nuclear advocates sometimes don't get along because they see themselves as competing in the mitigation space. If we did a lot to adapt to climate change, that might likewise reduce the incentives for cutting emissions. 
So this is sometimes described as a kind of moral hazard problem. I think in practice, we need to do all of these. If we really think that we need to keep the world from warming above one and a half or two degrees C, we're not going to do that alone through emission mitigation. We're going to overshoot. And that's a point I want to get back to in a, in a moment about how we think about this overshoot period. But we're going to overshoot. We, we, right now, there's recent research showing that for if we just use all the existing capital stock in the world, all the current cars on the road, all the current power plants, all the current factories, we don't build anything new. We just use those to the end of their economic lifetime. We'll go well beyond one and a half degrees C. Like we just have that much fossil intensive infrastructure and, and capital stock already in place around the world. And so we're going to need to, I think, look at all these other options. Would solar geoengineering discourage emission mitigation? We already have a strong free riding problem with emission mitigation. So we already have incentives working against us in cutting emissions. And, and some of what I've written with my colleague, Richard Zeckhauser, we've posited that there might be the term Richard coined, and there may be an awful action alert, which is to say that instead of perhaps displacing uh, emission mitigation efforts, if we tell the world climate change is so bad, we have to start dimming the sun. We're going to start putting particles into the upper atmosphere to reflect some of the incoming sunlight because climate change is getting that bad, that might have the opposite effect of sort of galvanizing public attention and scaring people enough to say, wait, we ought to be doing everything we can now. Do more on emission mitigation, do more on adaptation because we're now relying on this kind of, of, of unprecedented intervention in the atmosphere to try to manage climate change risk. So I think it could go the other way. And when we look at some of the research, there's not a lot here. We haven't done solar geoengineering yet. So we haven't really done it yet. There's been a little bit of, of, of research trying to see hypothetically how people would respond. And, and in several studies now, people have said they'd be willing to pay more to reduce emissions after learning about solar geoengineering as a strategy for addressing climate change risk. So it actually goes in the opposite direction of the moral hazard concern or criticism that solar geoengineering might reduce the incentives for cutting emissions. That's a really interesting insight. And I want to follow up on that point really quick. The impacts of climate change are already very intensely clear, particularly for a lot of the developing countries on the front lines of the climate crisis. Do you really believe that solar geoengineering and the risks associated with it, that that's going to be the tipping point that gets folks thinking about climate solutions when the very present climate impacts haven't tipped the needle in that sense? So I... I think it's it's something which we don't really know. I mean, we can we can speculate one way or the other. I, I think there is there, there's a there's a question at the end of the day about how we advance on all these fronts. That when you know when we think about this from the perspective of developing countries, as you noted, they are on the front lines of some of the worst impacts of climate change. They often also have fewer resources than developed countries to adapt and enhance the resilience to a changing climate. Uh, so I, I think there, there's, there's a risk here associated with how we go about decision-making on solar geoengineering and how that relates to the decision-making and the seriousness of action we take on these other strategies for managing climate change risk. And that is to say, if we if developing countries see one or a small number of developed countries just go forward on solar geoengineering, they don't engage in any kind of thoughtful way with other countries around the world on how we're going to govern the use of it. And it's thought of as a way to sort of get some of these countries out of having to cut their emissions more. 
I, I think you end up with an atmosphere of extreme distrust, and I, and I think potentially a lot of tension in international relations. I think on the other hand, if it's part of a all hands on deck, full steam ahead, every way we can reduce climate change risk, we're going to do it. And we see this coupled with ambitious emission mitigation programs, coupled with like getting serious about finance to enable adaptation in developing countries. And let's buy some time until we can really commercialize large scale capture of CO2 from the atmosphere. Because at the end of the day, that's the only way we're going to have, we're going to be able to bring concentrations down to a level that's consistent with the warming goals of the Paris Agreement of one, one and a half degrees or well below two degrees C. So I, I, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a question about sort of how you approach solo geoengineering in your decision making that is a part of a broader portfolio of actions to combat climate change. But also, how do you think about the decision-making process and who has voice in that process, I think will matter a lot for its legitimacy as well. And to that point, an effective solar radiation management solution would require at least a decade to be effectively designed, developed, and implemented. So many people argue that, given that, there's a need to start this process right now. Can you walk through the complexities of designing this global governance regime and structure for solar geoengineering? what some of the key considerations, contentions, and concerns that need to be addressed are? And do you have faith that we can come to a global consensus on this? So my concern about our ability to come to a global consensus on this is that for in a number of UN climate negotiations, we have come to a global consensus on what we think we ought to be doing to cut our emissions, and it's not doing enough. That when I think about the governance system in general, we have, I think, the best structure we've had for 30 years under the Paris Agreement. But we're going to need to do a lot more in implementing it in order to be effective in combating climate change. And so it's hard reaching global consensus on matters. And if anything, a concern is sometimes when we say we're going to have a decision rule of effectively a decision rule of consensus, it ends up having a strong bias towards the status quo. So it is the kind of thing that makes me a bit nervous to say, like, let's let's wait on this until we have sort of global consensus on governance. I think it's the kind of thing where it makes sense for us to be having serious conversations, both at a political level among countries, but also amongst researchers across countries, so that we have both the evidence and a, a thoughtful policy dialogue about what this means and what role it could play in combating climate change. I'm not sure that, you know, to the extent we say we're going to wait until we have a, a, a global consensus on governance before it gets used. I, th I think there's a question about at what point does a country decide just to go forward unilateral deployment? And, and so there's some speculation about that or whether or not there might be a small club of countries that would go forward with deployment. You know, I think there's, there's a question here about sort of what would be the composition of that club, whether or not we think that would be a legitimate and, and how it's undertaking action. But there's, this is one of the challenges that where we, we haven't actually had a serious conversation yet in the UN processes. You were talking at the beginning, Charles, about some of the big conferences we've had over the years. We just haven't had solar geoengineering on the agenda. When it's been on the agenda, it's been in the context, for example, at the Convention on Biological Diversity. But I think this is a, an issue that's, that really should be part of the climate change debate and about how countries talk about our ways of tackling the risk posed by climate change. Um, so I'm not sure I could say, like, here is the governance structure and present it for everyone and how to do it, because I'm not sure we actually have a good example of what would work that would secure agreement of all countries involved. But I think there is some value in trying to think through that, that having kind of a transparency and a venue where countries can engage and discuss this is certainly a good first step. 
And then to think through like what might be the basis for considering such a technology. We know research is going on around the world. And so right now it's just a bit of sort of almost darkness, if you will, in, in, in the policy dialogues when it comes to this. And I think that's why it's important that we are getting a little bit more serious about this. I think it's important that U.S. Congress told the executive branch, you should develop a five-year research strategy for solar geoengineering. And so we're waiting to hear from the Biden administration on what that five-year research plan would look like. That builds on a previous work by the National Academy of Sciences saying, we ought to think credibly and carefully about research. We ought to think about research governance, which is important. It's another form of governance than governance on the actual deployment and decision-making on solar geoengineering at scale. But I think there's a lot that we can think about that. And I think right now, we have an effort going on by the so-called Overshoot Commission. That is a group of eminent leaders, former heads of state, former heads of environmental groups, chaired by the former head of the World Trade Organization. And they're trying to think through what I think is a really important question for us now, which is to say, even if we're ambitious tackling our emissions and getting them down and getting down to net zero sometime in mid-century, we're likely to overshoot 1.5 we may well overshoot two degrees C. And so the question is, what are we going to do during this overshoot period until we have the technologies that allow us to bring CO2 out of the atmosphere and stick it deep in the ground or deep in the oceans? And so they're thinking about what it means to mobilize large-scale adaptation efforts, so thinking about the role of developing those large-scale carbon dioxide removal strategies, and they're thinking about the role of, of solar geoengineering. And, and they're expected to make a report uh, later this year and I think that's going to be important to inform the debate about what comes next. It's going to be important when we think about it in the context of the global stock take that is part of the next UN climate negotiations in November under the Paris Agreement. But I think it's going to be critical for us to get a lot more serious. That means talking a lot more publicly about what solar geoengineering could mean. What kind of voice do we want countries and peoples around the world to have? And what's going to serve as the basis for how we might go forward with research so that if we decide that climate change is bad enough that we really need this, we have this as part of our toolkit for combating climate change. That's certainly a really fascinating framework that you've outlined. I'm curious if you see any comparisons with artificial intelligence and the debates and conversations of how that process has unfolded. For example, with how quickly AI has developed, there's leading figures like Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak who have called for a six-month moratorium on AI development. Now, of course, that's unlikely to happen, but with solar geoengineering, there's a concern that if we don't invest in developing that policy, regulatory, geopolitical, social framework to ensure that there's appropriate development of a solar geoengineering mechanism, we're going to run into situations that are similar to what we're seeing with artificial intelligence. How do you grapple with that? Well, I, I think there's there's some characteristics of this that are, I think are important when we think about perhaps, say, governance of research related to AI or solar geoengineering. Some people are concerned when they think about solar geoengineering is what might be some of the unintended consequences? You know, if we're going to really put particles into the upper atmosphere, what happens if, because of uncertainties in the science, something really bad happens? And so it'd be nice to do some experiments that are lower stakes, smaller scale, before we do anything really big. There are some people who say, who, who are very concerned about the prospect of solar geoengineering because they feel like it is the, uh, the experiment with the only planet we've got. My sense is that we're already conducting an experiment with the only planet we've got, and that's called the emissions of greenhouse gases. And if anything, there's this kind of bias here between acts of omission 
our failure to meaningfully regulate and reduce our emissions of CO2, and acts of commission, which would be to move forward and actually build a the, the, the technological means for delivering a solar geoengineering intervention. And so it's easier to sort of block some of these acts of commission. It's easier from the standpoint of a politician. You get blamed for the specific things you do, more so than you often will get blamed for failing to take action. Uh, so I, I, I think there are some things there that I think are important. You know, one thing that I'll note that I think is different, though, between AI and solar geoengineering, it's not clear that, you know, occasionally there have been some uh, who suggest that maybe uh, the, the equivalent of like a James Bond villain could do, build their own solar geoengineering intervention and try to cool the whole planet. That's, that's pretty expensive. And it's not clear that any one individual could do that on a sustained basis. In contrast to AI, where I think there are strong private sector incentives to continue to develop the technology. And so I think when we, when we look at the, the two kinds of technologies, the, the leading candidate for solar geoengineering, putting particles in the upper atmosphere, is really only likely if you're going to see a major state that has the technical capacity to fly airplanes at very high altitudes and to be able to deposit particles out of their fuselage. There's only a small number of nation states that can really do this. And it would take some efforts to actually take some of our existing aviation technology. It, it seems, speaking with the engineers, feasible to do. We fly planes that high right now. Just the planes we fly that high typically carry a pilot and a camera and spy on another place. And that's about it. And, and instead, we need to design planes that fly that high and instead are able to shoot, have the aerodynamics to safely shoot out particles out of the fuselage into the atmosphere. Uh, so I, I think some things about this are different, but I think it's, it's worth considering about some of these novel technologies that, that we, we give careful thought about what their implications could be, how quickly those implications could become global, and how we try to manage some of the unintended consequences associated with those new technologies. Can you give some flavor as to who those countries are that you're speaking to in terms of the ones that have the technical, financial, and other resources to carry out something like this unilaterally? So part of it is just think through like where we have either sophisticated aviation industries in, in, in terms of the construction of, of planes or fairly sophisticated military and defense programs, um, because that's that's the kind of technology at the end of the day that you're going to put up into the atmosphere. And there are some who are concerned about how such a technology could even be militarized. You know, one of my colleagues at the Kennedy Schools frequently talked about how that we should always be careful about new technology. Because there's always someone who's trying to think through what are the opportunities to weaponize a new technology and how it might it might be used and, and, and abused. So I think there, there are some, some important concerns about that. But the idea is that if, if you are the United States, if you're the EU, if you're China, if you're Russia, you have the resources and, and, and the technical capacity to be able to do this. There's, there's probably more countries. And there's a question about what you think is the delivery vehicle. There's, there's some speculation you could just do a lot of big weather balloons and just shoot them up into the stratosphere and deposit the, the, uh, the particles that way. Now you're talking about a large number of countries that could potentially do this. There are also some other flavors of solar geoengineering. There's, there's another category referred to as marine cloud brightening. This is something that Australia is actually experimenting with right now off of its coast to try to cool the waters around the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, one of, the, one of the, the, the sort of first examples of how climate change is truly altering our planet is to look at what's happening to coral reef ecosystems because they tend to be among the most sensitive to a change in temperature among ecosystems around the world. 
And so concerns about what's going to become the Great Barrier Reef of Australia has motivated the Australian government to at sort of low elevations and a sort of more of a regional intervention as opposed to more of a global one, trying to brighten the clouds above the waters there along the coast to sort of offset some of the warming in the waters uh, that are the thermal pollution that is damaging the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, so I think there's other kinds of strategies where we could see more and more countries experiment with and do on their own, but they all have these potential spillovers to other parts of the world and other neighboring countries. And I think that's why it's important that we at least have a, a candid dialogue among countries about this to be transparent. The Australian government has been transparent about doing this experiment, but in general, we should be transparent about this so that we've got at least some degree of trust when we're trying to learn more about this technology and then be transparent about how we're going to engage each other in that kind of decision-making process among those who have the technical capacity so that it's not just the haves who decide, but it's the haves who work with the have-nots on how and when we should decide to consider this technology. You talk a little bit about the idea that there may be clubs that are formed, whether it's groups of nations or individuals or perhaps fossil fuel companies getting together and doing some sort of geoengineering measure. Is there anything that's stopping them from just doing this right now? For example, we're seeing this with island nations like Vanuatu taking efforts to petition in front of the International Court of Justice, or countries like Pakistan with unquestionably and unbearably high costs associated with climate change already. What's stopping them from getting together and testing this? In a sense, there's not sort of an institutional constraint. There's There doesn't appear to be international law to the extent that would bind on countries. There doesn't appear to be international law that's really stopping them. There's some discussion about a 2010 decision at the, uh, in Nagoya, Japan, at the Convention on Biological Diversity on Solar Geoengineering um, that one could interpret, but it doesn't really have much bite. Perhaps this also reflects my bias as an American. The U.S. is not a party to that convention. But in general, like I, I think if, if some countries were like, hey, we, they could argue we have to do this because of the threat of storm surge and sea level rise and climate change risk beyond that, are such that, you know, when you say that's a threat to our biological diversity, they're existential threats. So we have to do this to protect our biological diversity. And that's why we're going to do this right now. There, There is an old weather modification treaty, but this is unlikely to, I think, stop or constrain institutionally how uh, someone may pursue this. Here's, here's part of the challenge that we face when we think about governance for this, but governance more generally on climate change. We have organized the world in terms of our politics and our political institutions such that there's significant deference to national sovereigns within international law. The UN does not do much that can really bind uh, what a, an individual country can or cannot do. And so there, there's a question about how we might, whether it's naming and shaming, whether it's trying to think through sanctions, there's various tools that individual domestic governments might apply uh, to others to try to discourage them from undertaking such an action. To be candid, if low-lying small island states said we've waited long enough for the world to cut its, its emissions and they haven't done enough and they find the means to launch a solar geoengineering intervention, you know, they've been taking the moral high ground for decades in the UN talks and talking about the threat that it is to their existence. Uh, I'm not sure who really faults them if they would decided to go that route. I'm not sure they have the resources, both technological and financial to do this. But one could imagine potentially when we think about the clubs and we think about it, the design of a club that, that the members of the club would aspire to be legitimate, 
uh, in the eyes of, of other countries and perhaps an opening club in which you want to invite other countries to join you is you're likely to think of, you know, if you're, if you're going to aspire to be legitimate, then you would at least say, look, in other climate contexts, we have representation and participation by developed and developing countries alike. We try to have this kind of participation by countries that span the world. So you can imagine potentially building a club that would engage some of these small island states, but also wealthier developed countries that might have the technical and financial resources for this, as well as other emerging economies around the world. So I think you might see something along those lines. Uh, if you were to think about something that is a, a small set, a club oriented approach to this, as opposed to something that would be 190 plus countries trying to reach agreement at a UN uh, negotiation. So there's a study by Wake Smith and Gernot Wagner that estimates that the direct costs of implementing a solar geoengineering regime could be about two to two and a half billion dollars a year, which, as folks know, is far less than mitigation and adaptation efforts would cost. How would the financing mechanism for a global solar geoengineering regime work, and where would the capital come from? So one thing I'll note, Wake, Wake has done some more work on this, and he suggests if you're going to go really long term, those are sort of the startup costs. If you were going to think about this over the course of, say, 50 to 100 years, it might be a little bit more than that, but it, it's still measured in like single digit billions of dollars a year. I would also emphasize it's not just that it looks cheaper than emission mitigation or adaptation. It looks a lot cheaper than human suffering from climate change. So I, I think that the, the issues here, when we think about how we might finance it, you know, if you were to think about an, a club approach, you might agree on some kind of sharing of the cost. But to be honest, if we, if we got serious about this, I think there's a number of large economies that just have the means they would just they'd be able to fund it themselves. I, I think at the end of the day, you you would want a shared financing because it's in a sense, if different countries pay in, even if it's different amounts, paying in gives them voice in the process. And in fact, it almost guarantees them voice in the process. So I, th I think... If you were really to get go to the next step, after we've done the kind of research I think we need to do first, like we could do solar geoengineering pretty soon. I just don't think we could do it well pretty soon. And I think that's where we need to be able to do more research to really understand where would be most effective, how we'd be able to sort of monitor it, how do we evaluate its effectiveness, how do we try to assess and identify potentially adverse unintended consequences and then explore how you might mitigate those consequences. That's the kind of research we need to be doing now. We need to be doing our homework now, I think. Uh, a lot of that can be homework we just do in the lab. A lot of it would be kind of, if you will, expansions of existing climate change research on in, in the atmospheric sciences. Some of it would be very small scale experiments in the field. And by small scale, I mean, just like, just testing to make sure our, our, our instruments in the stratosphere work for measuring changes in the stratosphere that you expect to observe if you're really able to put particles in the upper atmosphere and cool the planet. So I think there's that kind of work that needs to be done. And then the, the financing is to be, to be honest, quite modest, given the scale of resources we're going to be dedicating for adaptation and mitigation. And so I, I'm not that concerned about how you go about financing it. But I think, again, this is one where I think for the decision-making process, it's more legitimate if those expenses are shared across countries. Right. And that's an important segue into the final question, which is that there's an argument that the poorest and most vulnerable countries would benefit the most from solar geoengineering. There are studies showing that solar geoengineering can create economic growth while reducing inequality, which, as you know, is an economist's dream. Justice and equity figure to be one of the most important, if not the most important, considerations in the solar geoengineering discussion. 
So can you talk a little bit about the distributional impacts of solar geoengineering, the costs and the benefits, and what that might look like? Yeah, so one thing that's important to note is solar geoengineering is not simply reversing climate change. Right. So, so we, when we look at the sort of distribution of impacts around the world from climate change, in general, uh, we think that lower income populations, whether they're living at, in the tropics or whether we may think about lower income populations here in the United States, because of the lack of resources for adaptation, are more likely to face more adverse impacts from climate change. For that matter, in some of the sort of hotter parts of the world, getting a little bit harder with climate change potentially pushes you down a, a very adverse slope when we think about declining productivity in agriculture, greater heat stress and the impacts on human health, things of that nature. Solar geoengineering is going to offset some of these things. So it's going to offset some of the risks posed by climate change, but not all of them. Some of the things that are going to happen because of climate change are going to be, if you will, kind of sort of threshold events when we think about perhaps changes in ecosystems where we're going to move to sort of a new equilibrium. And so even cooling down the planet means that we've already moved into a different kind of equilibrium space and we may not go back to the old equilibrium. So, so to be clear, we're not just turning, we're not just reversing climate change, but we are offsetting a lot of the worst impacts. We are offsetting a lot of the impacts that are driven primarily by changes in the global energy balance and the, the temperature of the atmosphere. So as a result, we would expect to see in some of the initial modeling, although I think it's still at a fairly early stage, some of the initial modeling does suggest significant public health benefits and reduced risk in lower income countries around the world. And so I, I think that is something that when we think from the consequences, when we think about sort of the distribution of consequences, when we think about the, the ethics from a, a consequentialist perspective, that's incredibly important to see this sort of, if you will, sort of progressive benefits associated with solar geoengineering. But I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot here as well when we think about voice and participation. And when we think about the, the sort of the equity about who actually is going to play a role determining if and when we might pursue and implement a solo geoengineering intervention. So I think it's also equally important to, to think through how do we, you know, what, what is the means by which we hear from the voices in developing countries? And I think that is important both in terms of having a process politically for us to sort of discuss this, but to also ensure that the, the leadership, the political leadership in developing countries can tap into expertise in their countries so that they can better understand the impacts of climate change and the potential impacts of solo geoengineering. Um, that we need to think about how we build up that expertise so that you have scholars and experts in country producing the evidence that can inform their decision makers in their country as they then engage in conversations and political dialogue with uh, other countries around the world. And so that's why I think it's really important for us to be having a conversation about solo geoengineering but also really important that we're going to actually try to build out that kind of expertise and that knowledge base, which we've done in other contexts related to climate change, where there's a lot more understanding of the economics of cutting emissions now in many developing countries at their universities and in their governments than there was when I first started working on this issue 25 years ago. So it's something we know we can do, but I think it's something that we need to be active in thinking how we can engage and build up that scholarly knowledge and expertise in other countries so that they can have informed domestic debates that then ensure that we have informed multilateral debates in the international sphere. Professor Aldi, thank you for talking with me today. 
You can find more information about Professor Joe Aldi at scholar.harvard.edu slash J-A-L-D-Y. And you can follow Professor Aldi on Twitter at Joseph Aldi. Thanks again to Professor Aldi for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Development's research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon.